The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Joining me today are two of my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Firm, attorney Aaron Finkelstein, who has over 20 years of experience at the Murthy Law Firm as, and has been managing attorney for several years, clearly very smart, brilliant, creative, and talented. And joining Aaron and myself is Chris Drynan, another brilliant, creative, sharp, knowledgeable, and experienced attorney. Today's topic is I-485 filings and how we as employers can help in the process, what we can do, and a little bit to understand what's going on. Um, I know this is a hot topic, especially because your employees are trying to meet the deadline to file that we think right now is October of 2020, but most likely it may continue for a couple extra months. But the main question people asking is, what exactly is going on? Why are the numbers moving? What's happening? And the basic answer is, it's a supply and demand issue. If the number of people applying for immigrant visas is far less than what should be used, then all of the unused numbers from family-based spill and go over to the employment-based category. And that is exactly what we are seeing here. Because of the presidential proclamation of April 22nd of 2020, under the Trump administration, which completely shut down U.S. consular posts from issuing immigrant visas abroad, all of those unused family-based immigrant visa numbers are spilling over to help employment-based applicants. And so that's what's causing the flood of new immigrant visa slash 485 adjustment of status cases that can be filed starting from October 1st of this month onward which is right now current, the priority dates. And so that is what has resulted in a significant forward movement, particularly for EB3 India, as well as some movement in EB2 India. And so please expect and support your employees as they are processing this and trying to meet deadlines. So with that, Aaron, if I can go to you. So why is everybody rushing and where do you expect the priority dates to move in November or December. Thank you very much, Sheila. I think everyone's rushing because no one knows yet if they'll be possible to file, uh, to file cases based on these numbers after the month of October. The visa bulletin that gets published, it gets published in the middle of the month, it tells us what's going to happen for the next month, and there is no visa bulletin, so there's no guarantee of what's going to happen. Um, but it is a good prediction to think since you mentioned the family-based cases that were not used got carried over into the employment-based cases, those family-based cases actually more than doubled the usual quota of cases that are available for the entire world, including India, Mexico, Philippines, so on and so forth. By doubling those numbers and by the rule that says they can only use, which brought it to 261,500 approximate case, uh, visa numbers that are available, and the rule that says they can only use 26% per quarter, 
it's easy to imagine that the numbers will remain at this level or this visa bulletin number, or perhaps even jump forward, jump a little backwards, jump, jump forward again, as they continue to figure out how to use so many visas in such a short period of time. Thank you, Aaron. And you're so right that this is so confusing, just you explaining it and we doing this for the last 20, 30, 40 years. Still, you kind of scratch your head and say, well, can't it be more organized? Can't it be more structured? But that's the way the system is, uh, as you correctly pointed out. So, Chris, mm-hmm. if I'm the employer, I'm head of HR, I'm helping with immigration filings, I'm the company owner, what can I as an employer do to move things and help my employees meet all these deadlines at this time. Right, Sheila. I mean, the main thing to remember right now, given this this sudden onslaught of of 45 filings, every every immigration law firm in the country is is buried with these cases right now. Small, big, small, and medium. They're all every everyone is is all hands on deck right now. Um, so you have to remember that that attorneys, as they're preparing these cases, they have. I mean, they obviously have have limits in terms of how many how much they can do a day. Um, so you really have to make it easy for them to, to put these cases together. And that means being responsive, have, making sure that your HR department is responsive. Um, if you want to give the employees, uh, for example, you can get checklists for the I-45 and for the, uh, for the I-944, which is the financial form that has to be filed now with these, with these applications. If you can give these checklists, print out these checklists from the, from the USCIS website and give these to your employees, so they know what documents are going to are going to be needed. That's very helpful because uh, then you don't have a situation where attorneys your attorneys are asking for these documents, and the, and the employees are having to dig around to get them or find them, which absolutely slows everything down. Um, it's important to there are some documents here that that are from the employer side, most notably a form called the I-45 Supplement J, which basically confirms that you're still offering the employee the job that's listed on the I-140. And that has to be signed by, by the employer. So you really need to make sure that your HR departments are responsive uh, to signing those as quickly as possible. Because any delays here, we're, we're talking about a very limited time frame here and a very a limited window of opportunity. Any, any delays, even a, even a matter of days, could make the difference between being able to file by the 31st or not being able to file by the 31st. So, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Make your HR available. Give out checklists to your employees what they're going to need to submit. Very good. Excellent points, Chris. And if I may add, because I know one of the next questions I was going to touch upon was about the fee increase, and is that still in effect? If you as an employer have agreed to cut the USCIS checks for both USCIS and for the company attorney or the outside attorney, please issue those immediately and promptly because you want to make sure that you use, that you submit it, that you provide the information. And of course, that's connected with what are the fees because we thought the fees were going to change on October 2nd, last Friday, um, uh, effective October 2nd of 2020. And then there was a lawsuit and just a day or two before the effective date, the all fees were held in abeyance while the lawsuit is pending. So do we know exactly what's going to happen? Well, from, if on the day you file it's the correct fee, then the USCIS has to accept that fee. If the fees increase before we file it, then, of, of course, the new fees would become applicable. Next question. Um, so, Aaron, will there be any other new forms for filing these cases, including the I-485, possibly H-1B, et cetera, which employers need to be concerned about? 
So, you know, there were there was a big lead into October 1st with a lot of concern about changes of for, forms, things that were being published that said, hey, with the new fees, we're going to have new forms and all this uh, all these changes that are going to take place. Right now, because of that lawsuit, I think as a residual effect of that lawsuit and the fees staying where they are, the government has published on its website that the forms that are currently in play, the ones that have been in play up until now, will continue to be used going forward. Uh, and I do think, Sheila, that you're right that this is all about that lawsuit. And I do think that based on what's going to happen with the lawsuit, with the fees, there may be some type of change later on. But I would absolutely think that for now, get your fees in. If you can get your case filed under this, you should be fine. Thank you, Aaron. Okay, Chris. So what if the employee notifies the employer that I don't know that I can file because some very important documents in my file are missing, whether it's birth, marriage, you know, divorce, prior divorce, etc. I can't get these documents because it may take months or even years to get them. So it'll be after possibly the priority date is closed. So is this potentially going to be a problem? And can the employer support the employee with the filing anyway? Well, I mean, it, it can be an issue if you have if you have missing documents that might take a take a long time to obtain. Um, but what I always tell people in this situation is to file with the best documentation you can. I mean, there is certainly a list of, of required documents, um, and you should submit everything you possibly can. But if there's if there's a particular docu- document that you absolutely cannot obtain, the best thing to do really is to is to get whatever substitutes are available. And I think I think we're going to talk perhaps about birth and birth and marriage certificates a little bit later on briefly. Um, but get get the best substitutes for those that you can and submit those with the application. And hopefully what will happen is you'll get a request for evidence later on as, as opposed to USCS rejecting the case outright. Does that occasionally happen if you submit a case without, without required documents? It does. It does. But, I mean, the, the main goal here at this point is to get that case filed by the end of the month. And if that means it's not necessarily going to be perfect, um, sometimes you, you, you have to take a chance on that and just uh, hope for the best and hope that USCS will fee the case in and accept it and ask for the missing documents later on. And sometimes that's the best you can do. Makes sense. Thank you, Chris. But also, I guess, generally by the middle of the month, so by October 10th, 15th, 20th, last month it was on September 24th evening that they told us they released the priority dates. But generally around the 15th of the month, we will know if these same priority dates continue to remain current for the month of November as well. So hopefully there's a little bit of breathing room. As Aaron pointed out, it's likely to continue to progress. So yes, keep it all ready because if you don't get that extension, you want to file it. But if you get the extension, then you can look for the better and cleaner documents. Talking about clean documents. Sheila, just to jump in on that, because there's, there's that's actually two parts. If we're talking about the visa bulletin, there's, there's the raw dates. And there's also the issue on whether USCS is going to allow us to use the use the better dates, use the more favorable dates of filing. Dates. Correct. So the final action gonna, date versus dates yeah. of filing. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we're not necessarily going to know that at the same time as the visa bulletin. There's usually some time lag in that. Yeah, last time I think it was like a day or two delay in that. So that's right. the other risk that we're dealing with. Good point. Thank you for that additional clarification as well, Chris. Mm-hmm. Uh, but talking about important documents, let's talk in countries like India, which allow common law kind of a thing or allow under the Hindu Marriage Act of 1954, it is legal, legally binding for the marriage not to have to be registered, uh, even though the Indian Supreme Court suggests that registration is strongly recommended to protect the rights of the parties. And so 
if you or we as lawyers or and you know get questions about well i don't have a registered marriage uh, abroad it was a civil ceremony uh, or it was a, more than even a civil ceremony it was a religious ceremony nine out of ten cases because i think under the hindu marriage act just going around the fire seven times counts as a valid marriage because fire is your witness um and so uh, if you or you can't find your prior d- divorce documents what do you do well exactly like chris said determine whether we have time or if we don't file with what you have and hope it won't be either outright rejected or worse denied uh the package in both cases i could say it's worse to be outright rejected or denied both are pretty bad options um similarly what's the rule with respect to birth documents erin and so with birth documents you could have either non-existent or you could have a document that has a typographical error you could have a document that was registered late late registration means it was registered more than 1 year after the baby was born after the individual was born you could have where it's missing one or both parents names uh a, a, a very typical we see the wrong birth year on documents so in that type of situation there's actually a rule for how to deal with this and they say that number 1 you have to prove that these types of documents are not of not of that the birth document or or the marriage document that she was mentioning is not available for whatever reason now non-existent aside all these other documents that we've listed where there's typographical errors those you could show this is the only document that exists and by doing that those other documents act as a non-availability document for the one where there one doesn't actually exist you need to get a record from the municipality that indicates that they've searched their records and they can't find it after that secondary evidence is helpful 10th grade completion certificate helps uh birth uh, uh temple records medical records anything that you can find is helpful and we like to supplement that with with even the next layer of evidence which is two affidavits from people who are aware of the of or have knowledge of the facts but are not a party to the case which are generally parents brothers sisters so on and so forth so if you have something and there's a flaw you can immediately look for secondary evidence such as your completion certificates medical records get two affidavits of birth and usually that kind of combined documentation will be more than sufficient to go through thank you erin in many countries even including india the ration card is used just because it shows the mother's name father's name and the children showing that they lived in one household along with all of the other high school leaving certificates etc that you mentioned and this affidavit which is again the secondary levels of evidence excellent so from an employer's point of view a lot of individuals are now asking the employer can you please try to downgrade my case because i have an eb2 approval uh a priority date because i fought and begged and asked for it back then 5 10 15 years ago uh, it wasn't <laughs> because that was what was moving way faster back then now i've read that eb3 will help me to file and you know get especially because one of my children is now a teenager and is going to approach that scary cut off age and will age out at the age of 21 so what what you know how can i help how can you as the employer help can should i do an eb3 downgrade what what are the options for the employer and what are the risks chris for the employer to consider Yeah, so this is an interesting situation because as as I think everyone knows EB3 jumped sharply forward uh, sharply sharply forward in this in this visa bulletin. So that means if you've got someone with an EB2 approval 2012, 2013, 2014, um they're they're not current in EB2. But what the employer could potentially do if they're willing 
is they could file a new I-140 requesting an EB-3 classification using the PERM case, the labor certification that was previously used to support the EB-2. Um, and for this to really to work in this scenario, you would have to concurrently file that EB-3 I-140 along with the 485, along with the adjustment of status application. And it can be done. I mean, you're, you're essentially filing a new I-140 and it does have issues, um, but it is an option. I mean, if, if, you, if you have people who have an EB-2 approval, um, I think we're going to talk a little bit later on about some of those issues here because it's not uh, – you have to remember this is, this is a new filing, so you do have to meet the requirements. Um, right. So those are the issues about the ability to pay the employer and concerns about whether now under the Trump administration where everything is looked at under the magnifying glass or a microscope, whether they would actually come back and ask additional <laughs> questions and whether there's possible risk of losing both the EB-2 and the EB-3, which always exists. When you, I always say, it, if you kick the, the, the tiger, that is, or you pull the tail of the tiger, as they say, we're taking yeah, some risk, so absolutely. If you file anything new, you're basically giving USCIS an excuse to go back and look at everything right. they were put before. And, and in uh -huh. addition, when you file something new, there's a regulation that talks about that if that ends up the information you file is insufficient and the EB-3 case gets denied, there's a regulation that talks about new adverse information that was never previously available to the government that now becomes available. And if the evidence you provide is not good enough to win the EB-3 case, it may be not good enough for the EB-2 case also. It may result in them reopening the EB-2 and taking a look at it and possibly pulling back from the EB-2 case. There's also this thing where, even though we had an inversion with China previously, but there's this thing where you have a conjoined twin situation where you have one perm case being shared by an EB-3 and an EB-2, and the question is, if it transfers fully into the downgrade and the EB-2 is, so to speak, hollowed out, whether the government might make a policy about that or not. So there are some risks for filing. And last, when you're dealing with ability to pay, especially consulting companies, and especially consulting companies that have people that are coming and going and they're never withdrawing or canceling I-140s, you could potentially get an ability to pay RFE that says, demonstrate for any I-140 you've ever filed during this timeline, which could be an absolute you know, terror to be able to answer. So there are so, there's certainly benefits, but there's also some risks involved. Chris, I had one quick question for you on this point. You mentioned that the visa bulletin for EB3 jumped forward expeditiously, but you mentioned oh, but but previously you said it was only for the filing dates. Does filing dates help you to protect your child for, let's say, under CSPA or under filing? Will that actually preserve your child's date? That's something I've been getting a lot of questions about recently, and this was an open question for for several years when they when they came out with this basically this two tier visa bulletin. Um, for a long time, it was kind of, for several years, it was kind of an open question as, as to whether filing under the dates of filing protected your age out children. USCIS came out, I think it was late last year, and said no. The, CS, the, the Child Status Protection Act calculation is based only on the final action date. Okay, so the fact that you're able to file now under the the, the dates of filing uh, uh, chart does not mean that your your children who might be approaching 21 are going to be protected you would still need the final action date to move forward to give them any protection. So that is a big issue to remember. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Aaron. Excellent, excellent discussion, excellent points, lots of nuances for employers to consider in understanding the EB2, EB3 downgrade and Children and Child Justice Protection Act. The only silver lining with this new interpretation, though possibly, arguably, Chris,
uh, as you're speaking, I'm thinking is since Joe Biden has made it very clear that if he were to be elected president in come next month in November of 2020, then he is going to turn the clock back and reverse all of the anti-immigration policies established under the Trump administration, including mem- memos and policies and proclamations and executive orders. So maybe there's the silver lining where the USCIS may change their policy and say, we, we might allow it. But again, until that change happens, you have to assume if you have a child that is a teenager in their late teenage years and become coming closer to the 21 age, that there the child may not be protected, even with the, after filing the 485. So I know we're kind of trying to monitor the time, so I want to keep moving. Uh, Chris, did you want to add one last point? Just one, one final thought on the Child Status Protection Act. There are some, there have, uh, we've been discussing among, among attorneys that there might be legal arguments that you could challenge that, that, that policy. Um, if, if you have someone who actually is willing to go into federal court and challenge the U.S. government, there might be a legal argument there. It's a little bit outside the well, realm of like, this, this teleconference, but it's a possibility. Correct. And I, I always say parents, uh, even people who are laid back and relaxed when it comes to protecting your child, I'm sure that we will be able to get parents who will fight tooth and nail like mama bears to protect their cub, baby cubs, even if the baby is turning close to 21. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so the next question that we want to try to address is, you know, where it says, um, you know, both my spouse and mine, um, meaning the two of your employees, the, the principal applicant and the spouse, both priority dates now become current. Should the employees then file four separate 485 applications, uh, two through one employee, you know, through this job and this and two through the other case? And... Uh, my, our, my thought, and in general, based on what USCIS has said over the years, is do not file multiple 485s. It, con- it is confusing. It is voluminous. It's extra waste of filing fees, legal fees, processing costs, everything in a, with an agency that's already overburdened, spread thin. So what I would do is file the one that has an earlier or better date, make a decision which one we should really go with, file that 485. If you absolutely want to try to do a backup option on the second spouse, I might consider what's called consular processing option, file the IA-24 with the USCIS on the second spouse so that if push comes to shove and some problem happens with the first principal case with the 485 filing, you at least have the second case. It also might actually protect, again, under the CSPA kind of an issue, which I know we don't want to delve into, because if you file that A-24, it could potentially freeze the age of the child under the calculations or computations under CISPA, the Child Status Protection Act. Um, there's nuances of that about what happens, you know, would it change if the case is downgraded to the EB2 or EB3, et cetera. But I think that is beyond the scope of what we're expecting from this particular conversation, especially as we're trying to wrap this up within less than 30 minutes for busy employers and employees. So let's go to the next question. And if you have time, we'll come back to some of these nuances. Um, I know a lot of people who were who back around then, Aaron, talk about this being very comparable to the summer of 2007, the whole July visa gate that we talk about, um, where the USCIS opened the date, the Department of State and USCIS said, we don't have the wherewithal or the bandwidth to deal with it. And they tried to shut it down as early as July 2nd and didn't want any more filings. So can you predict if that could happen either in October or in the, over the coming months, what could potentially happen? Yeah, so a lot, I'm getting a lot of questions that people are saying, you know, is this like the summer of 07? 
there's two distinctions between this and the summer of 07. In the summer of 07, we were rolling into the last quarter of the year, and we were only talking about a difference of 11,000 unused visas that had been misrepresented to a certain point to the visa to the visa control to the Department of State. Let's just say the Department of State. And so you were talking about where 11,000 numbers, they approximately gave you three months plus minus, and they said, okay, we're opening up all the numbers. Now keep that in mind, end of the year, so that's one thing, last quarter, and only 11,000 numbers. In this situation, we're talking about the beginning of a fiscal year, and we're also talking about double the number of a visa bulletin, not 11,000, but 130. 5,000, 136,500 additional visas, literally doubling the visa bulletin. So there, I think what they did was they had a limited amount of time. They made everything current. Here they have 10 times plus the number of visas that are available, but at the same time they have the entire 12 months to balance it out, and they're dealing with a rule that says they can only use 26 visas, 26,000 visas per month per quarter, excuse me, which gives them about 26%, which gives them about 65,000, I don't want to throw numbers too quickly, but gives them about 65,000 plus minus visas to use each quarter. Keeping this in mind, I think that what you're seeing, the fluctuations and the pluses and the minuses and the thing that we're feeling in October that we're predicting for November or December, I don't think it's going away in November or December or January or February. I think we're carrying this through for the whole 12 months. We don't know what it's going to look like, but we know that it's different from the summer of, of 2007, and we know that it's going to be much more intense, and it's just going to have to wait and see how they play out the numbers and process things. Thank you, Aaron. Okay, so Chris, um, you know, if, if a lot of the people, employers, and today's scholar consulting companies, and so, you know, they're, of course, they're saying that they've had many employees over the years who have come and gone, um, and they've never, they tend not to revoke the I-140 petitions. Do you think that either whether downgrades will be a problem, or can they have some of these employees coming back to now saying, hey, I know you helped me get an I-140 back then. I would like to, to come back and join you. So you have multiple nuances of this question for consulting companies or for any companies, not even consulting, regular employers, an employee that left you, you had done the permanent I-140, five years, 10 years later ago they left you, and now they want to come back to file the 485 with you. Is that an option? Well, I mean, this, we've touched on this a little bit a few minutes ago, I think, Sheila. This is really an issue, particularly for consulting companies that have, tend to have lots of employee turnover. They, a lot of them, are, a lot of companies are willing to file perm cases and I-140s for the majority of their employees. And what they could, in, what they end up with sometimes would be potentially hundreds of I-140s where the employees have left. Okay, and the, the problem here is if you file another I-140 or if you file, let's say you file an EB-3 downgrade case, it's USCS's policy for many years that you have to show that you have the ability to pay for all your approved I-140s. And, I mean, if you're, for the people who are actually on the payroll, typically not such an issue because a lot of times they're going to have W-2s that will cover the, cover the wage. But for the people who are not working for the company, have not worked for the company for years, you're going to have to cover that salary either with your profit or theoretically with your, your available cash or your, your bank accounts which a lot of companies, are, if we're talking potentially 100 I-140s, a lot of companies are not going to be able to do that. And so if you file the next, if you file that EB-3 downgrade, 
that could that that could be denied, and potentially they could go back and start revoking the other I one forties. So it is definitely okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is. There's so there's a lot of nuances, as you can see. There are a lot of gray areas. There's lots of um, issues to be concerned about with 485 filings. A lot of people think, oh, it's just a couple of different forms. It's simple. It's straightforward. What's the big deal? Just file it, get done with it, and you're out of here. But as you can see from our discussion, and we haven't even talked about other issues like, like I said, I-140 with a different employer. Now they're with your company. Can they now file the 485 while they're working for your company based on the I-140 with a prior company? The answer is generally no because it's a future job offer. It has to be that parties have to have a bona fide good faith intention to go back and return and work with that prior employer from whom the employee got the permanent I-140 approval. Otherwise, it's a potential problem unless it's an AC-21 adjustment of status portability where the person filed the 485 while working with the prior employer. It's more than 180 days. And now you as the new employer can file the Supplement J to show that it is the same or similar job. I think we talked briefly about Supplement J right in the beginning. And one last issue that I just want to briefly again touch upon is the issue about criminal. I mean, if someone's had a DUI, which is quite common, DWI, any kind of issue other than maybe just a speeding ticket with no alcohol or anything involved, um, you could potentially have a big issue in getting being considered admissible to the U.S. And so the lawyer needs to investigate, do research, talk to the, and that case may have additional delays in filing, even if it's your star employee at your company, someone that you say that you absolutely need this case filed, you want to keep this employee happy. If there are complications, I would say that that case will need more time and attention and may or may not be able to be filed on a super rush basis over the next couple of weeks or few weeks. So uh, again, uh, lots of issues, a lot of concerns, but you as an employer, the main thing that you can do is support them, help them, guide them, cut the checks, provide the checklist, help them out. And so we can hopefully all meet these deadlines. And yes, if they're moving targets, that's okay too. I know we try to stay within that 30 to 40 minutes and we're past the 30 minutes. So I just want to say that on behalf, on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Aaron Finkelstein, Chris Dreinen, and all of us at the Murthy Law Firm, we thank you for making time to join us today to discuss the nuances, procedural, and process issues connected with I-485 applications and filings expected in October of 2020. And we look forward to continuing to take good care of you, your companies, and your employees, and continuing to educate, enlighten, and empower you as you try to understand the constantly changing nuances that occur under U.S. immigration law. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful afternoon and take care. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.